I want to say this before we jump in today. Um, I am fully convinced and fully convicted with the words that I'm going to say today, the scriptures that we're going to read, and the faith that I have in Jesus and his word. Fully convinced, confident in his word. But there's a heaviness that comes with the territory that we're going to venture into today and over the next few weeks. And here's the heaviness. Because I know that for some of this, for some of us in this room today and across all of our services, some of the stuff that I'm going to deal with potentially pushes you away from God. Or causes you to try to find God on your own terms. And that gives me a heavy heart. Because here's what I believe. I believe that God's word presents to you and I the most convincing life plan for flourishing that one could have. I believe it's compelling. I believe it's like what he said in creation. It is good. And when we live into it, when we lean into it, I know that God is faithful. And I know that there's things in our lives right now that don't make sense. And there's going to be a lot of whatabouts that come up. Um, But I would ask that you would just work with us in this series and over the next few weeks um, to maybe open your heart, open your mind to what it is that God would have to say to you, you, to me, to us. Does that sound good, church? If you're a first-time guest, um, you're welcome. (laughs) The next three weeks are going to be big messages. Uh, Sunday, November 25th, we're going to be doing a... Uh, Q&A. We're going to answer questions that come out of the series. There's going to be all kinds of avenues through our emails, social media, where you can ask questions that have come out of this series. And we're going to try to tackle maybe the top seven, top 10. So if questions come up today, nothing's off limits. Um, as well, I want to say to those of you who have decided to keep your kids uh, with you in service today, uh, that decision's on you. So um, don't email us. Uh, we got a fantastic kids ministry happening over there. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. Y'all with me today? Oh, what page? Thank you. 156. Nice. Genesis 2, 21 through to 24 says this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. Anybody praise God for sleep? Come on, somebody. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And when the Lord God had made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman, he brought her to the man. And the man said, this, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. <clears throat> Both the man and his wife were naked. Listen to these words because they're important and they frame, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot for this message today. They were naked and they felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. This is why man leaves his father and mother, bonds with his wife. They were naked and they felt no shame. Matthew chapter 19, four to six, this is Jesus speaking. He writes, he says, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is Jesus affirming the Genesis account. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Sorry, guys. These allergies are whooping me today. Today, as we continue on in our series, Tethered, 
I want to speak to you from the subject marriage and origin story. As we look at the theology of marriage and what it actually means for our lives, no matter your relational designation today. We pray with me just one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, has the ability to transform us from the inside out. God, speak to us right now. Teach us your ways. I pray that your grace would be upon us today, that your spirit would move throughout this room as we discuss what it is we're going to discuss today. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody shouted. Everybody shouted? Joe, I'll bring you up in a little bit. Okay. Uh, Popularized by the Greek... <clears throat> by Greek mythology, the story of a woman named Pandora was the cause of a modern day idiom <clears throat> that many of us, sorry guys, I really apologize, <clears throat> that many of us are familiar with opening a Pandora's box. The story goes that the gods, after creating Pandora, little g, gave her a box that in the case of this myth contained all kinds of problems that the gods had placed within the box. Upon opening the creations placed within the box, would be released. <clears throat> the idiom, of course, has taken on different nuances over time, many being less harmful than the actual uh, mythological story presents to us. So today, when I, when I mention the theology of marriage, our discussion of it does open up a Pandora's box of sorts. <clears throat> that is why over the next few weeks, our teaching will cover topics ranging from the institution of marriage, singleness, gender, sexuality, sexual expression, sexual immorality, porn, the LGBTQ community, celibacy, dating, and Jesus. <clears throat> Someone shout Pandora's box. <laughs> As you can see, that's what this is. Various tissues connect all of this subject matter together, and today even more so. Now, the issues of sex and sexuality is a complex subject with complex answers due to the various lived experiences of all of us. However, truth, God's truth, must sit at the center of each of our lived experiences. And God is very clear about all of these subjects, contrary to what we may hear on social media. The extensive reality is that most of us have been sexually discipled by the world rather than the word of God. And where the church has stepped in, if I'm honest, the discipleship of this area has often been callous, out of touch, heavy-handed, myopic. The church has primarily dealt with this area with brutal truth rather than compassionate truth. Now, most of our teaching about sex and sexuality has been covered by a broad and sweeping antidote. Here it is. Don't have sex before married, marriage and get married. <clears throat> and to be honest, this is insufficient for the complex nature of humanity, sex, sexuality, especially in the 21st century where technology has inflamed and further complicated the issue. So the late Dr. Howard Hendricks, who is a professor at Dallas Baptist University, writes this. I love this. He said, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. <clears throat> so if you're in here today and you're like, man, I just don't think this is territory the church should venture into. Uh, you're in the wrong church. <laughs> uh, I don't think this territory is off limits. Actually, more importantly, we need to speak to this territory a lot. I'd like to further this commentary with a statement from Dr. Julie Slattery from her book, Rethinking Sexuality, as she writes this, although sexuality presents an enormous challenge to Christians and to the world at large, it is not a problem to be solved, but a territory to be reclaimed. <clears throat> 
So many of us, when we think of marriage, we no longer see a bride and a groom at the top of a wedding cake. For many, the definition of marriage has changed just as much as the expression or experience of it. And if we're honest, marriage is no longer held with great esteem and honor. In an article written in the Atlantic on the state of marriage, one author would say that because of the various ideas that people have concerning marriage, it doesn't seem like it's something that anybody needs to participate in or is even a a, a desired reality for our lives. In other words, marriage has actually become one of many options and for many, not an option at all. We'll talk about that in a few moments. In another article written, a professor of sociology and humanities at San Jose State College and director of its experimental program in humanities and science wrote this concerning marriage. Listen to his idea. He said, the truth as I see it is that contemporary marriage is a wretched institution. It spells the end of voluntary affection, of love freely given and joyously received. Beautiful romances are transmuted into dull marriages and eventually the relationship becomes constricting, coercive, grinding, and destructive. The beautiful love affair becomes a bitter contract. So no wonder there's mixed views on this thing called marriage, especially as we see climbing divorce rates, domestic abuse statistics, especially when it comes to Christian households. But here's the question I want to ask. Is the alternative better? It's an important question. Is perpetual singleness the answer to the bitter contract that is now marriage? Or is the, is the answer unfettered sexual release and doing whatever we want to do versus engaging in the bitter contract of marriage? In his book, Going Solo, author Eric Klingenberg highlights a significant shift in U.S. demographics. Listen to this. He writes, in 1950, only 22% of American adults were single. Today, more than 50% of American adults are single. And 31 million, roughly one out of every seven adults, lives alone. People who live alone make up 20% of all U.S. households, 28% of all U.S. households, which makes them more common than any other domestic unit, including the nuclear family. This number has actually gone up as the writing of this book was done in 2012. Research would tell us that due to work, Careers, how many of you know this to be true? Perceived compatibility issues, financial stratospheres, and now a seismic shift in sexual identification and behavior. The landscape facing those who are single has become increasingly more complicated. Add on top of that, the generally lax sexual ethic and the proliferation of cohabitation and pornography, depending on your faith adherence, being single can be just as complicated as marriage. Or being single becomes the chosen way to live as you unrestrict everything and do what you want to do. My job today and over the next few few weeks is to open Pandora's box. You're welcome. And help us sift through some of these issues. Our time today is specific in that we will look at marriage and then secondarily singleness from a biblical perspective and hopefully provide a more accurate and compelling vision for each of our lives. Because the truth is, is that there is a more extensive discussion than just marriage that we have to have. Biblically speaking, we can't talk about marriage without talking about singleness. And when I talk about singleness, let's be very clear. There's a vast range of people that this includes. We've got teenagers in here, young adults, college students. We've got, uh, we've got singles who would range between 28 and 55. We've got divorced. We've got widowed. Funny enough, statistically speaking, the largest demographic of people who are in this church today are not married people. They are single people. 
Okay, and so I want to say this unequivocally as well. We get asked this a lot. Why don't we have a singles ministry at the well? Because this is your singles ministry. We're not making a little, like another, we're not taking like half the church or more than half the church and creating another church. Come on, can I get an amen today? This is really important. This is the fallacy. And hopefully I can bring beauty and continuity to, to your singleness. Singleness is not a disease to be cured. Come on, all the singles said. <laughs> You're like, yeah, Sally, we're out. Now, before we go into a more in-depth discussion of our topic today, we got to deal with this issue of framework. Framework, okay? My definition of a framework is what we have constructed through various forms of information, experience, belief, and inheritance. What we've, what we've taken from our families of origin. The framework we have in life defines the life and world that we will build. Abigail Faval in her book, The Genesis of Gender, you'll hear me quote this book numerous amounts of times throughout this message in the coming weeks. She writes this, we must engage the vital questions of personhood, sex, identity, and freedom at the level of worldview. Because if we're honest in here, many of us come to this conversation today with very different worldviews. Y'all with me? We approach all of this conversation today with very different worldviews. So borrowing from a pastor in New York City, author, pastor and author John Tyson at Church of the City, New York, he gives what I feel is a very accurate presentation of the predominant frameworks at play in our current culture. Frameworks which give all of us our view of life and what we subsequently end up building from it. I want to go through each kind of area, uh, each major framework that we have a tendency to view life through. The first one is this, the secular framework. The secular framework is built on identity, rights, ideology, pleasure, consent, and sociology. Many of us derive our sexual ethic, our view on people, our view on society, our view on humanity, our view on our nation, our view on our world through this lens and everything that has to do with us. Here's the second framework. The second framework is a sacred or Christian framework. We see life through formation, fulfillment, theology, grace, transformation, and belonging. And yet there's a third framework, not talked about very often, but one that many of us operate in and we don't even know it. And we're building our lives off of it. It's the framework of shame. We see everything through legalism, moralism, literalism, fear, secrecy, and hypocrisy. And these frameworks are vital for us to examine as we look at the theology of marriage and subsequently many other topics that we'll examine over the next few weeks. The challenge that we all face when examining many of these issues is the frameworks that we have and, and how they've helped construct our understanding and opinions around these issues. Depending on our framework, the conversation of marriage, singleness, sex, intimacy, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism will be impacted. Now, before I continue, I want to acknowledge once again my bias and the framework in which I'm operating. But I want to do this from a biblically principled idea that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 5 verses 9 through to th uh, 13. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. Listen to what he writes. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
I did not mean immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. (laughs) Y'all seeing the words here? This is a constant argument that comes up, especially with people who are unchurched, not Christian. They're like, see the, see the Christians, they just judge everybody. Paul's actually saying, hey, listen, don't, you don't need to worry about the world. This is what he says. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Paul is submitting to us that the church is to have a unified framework in which we deal with life through. Now, I want us to see, I'm not trying to shout mandates at the world around me, sitting atop of my moral high horse. This was Paul's point as well. The world is going to do what the world is going to do. And I'm not surprised by it. Come on. However, what is done and taught within the church, especially this local church, is my responsibility as the pastor. And therefore, I must be clear on these and many other issues. As much as I'm not trying to tell the world how to handle their sexual ethic, the world is not allowed to dictate to the church how we handle and teach our sexual ethic. Now, I'm not trying to be confrontational when I say these things, but we are in a moment now in history, especially, and Paul was dealing with the same thing where the world is trying to edge in and say, hey, listen, you guys need to change some things. But according to scripture, we can't. This is orthodoxy. That was week one of our, of our series. So here's the big question I want you to ask yourself. We must all ask ourselves today. Write this down if you're taking notes. Who is the authority that governs me? Let it sit. Who is the authority that governs me? Who is the authority over my personal and sexual formation? How we answer this question tells us about our framework. What it is that we're ultimately going to build in our lives. I want to say this very clear. Everybody look at me when I say this. You must decide if you want all of God. And if so, you need to understand that God wants all of you. A.W. Tozer said, when the truth has been revealed in the word of God, our business is to find out what that truth is and in all of our teaching conform to that truth. We are not to edit it or change it, but to let it stand just as it is. He then goes on to say this very powerful statement. Men are not willing to let God be what he says that he is. They attempt to change, correct, alter, and apologize for God and attempt to make him be other than what he is. God is, and we'd better accept him as he is. This is why God says, when people ask, who are you? He says, I am. But here's the, here's the dangerous ground that many of us are standing on right now in our current moment is that many of us even sitting in this room today and online believe that we are kinder and more loving than God. The problem is, is that none of you have died for anybody. 
Let that sit. We're all running around making TikToks and Instagram posts, sending out our Facebook things with, the, with, with undergirding thoughts that we are kinder and more benevolent and more loving than God. The problem is, is you've never laid your life down for somebody in a salvific way. None of you have the power or the authority. When I say you, I'm not pointing at you. I'm saying me as well. None of us have the power or the authority to lay our lives down to produce salvation and eternity for anybody. So God's way is the most loving and kind way that there is. But for many of us, we've got, it it takes faith to engage with that. People say that if you love me, you'll affirm my choices of sexual identity and desire and design and proclivities and whatever I want to do. This is what God says. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And there's a choice that we have to make between authority of self and authority of God. This is the idea that author David Bennett captures in the title of his book, A War of Loves. We'll hear more from his book in the coming weeks. The idea that we've got two loves in us at all times waging war against each other, love of self and love of God. And the question is, is who wins? Here's what I want to say today. Many of our issues, especially surrounding sex and sexuality, begin with the rejection of God as creator and Lord. This is what Jesus affirms in the origin story that we've just read, found in Genesis and again, Matthew chapter 19, verses four to six. So I want to look at this origin story with the remaining time that we have left. And can I please say this? Stop doing in your head right now what it is you're doing. And that's, and that's this. Well, what about this? Some of you are doing that right now. Well, what about? You stopped listening, listening seven minutes ago and you're going, well, what about this? What about this? I'm going to get him after service. And I'm asking, what about this? <laughs> I won't answer the question right now. Today, we are scratching the surface of what is complex. But I want to submit to us today, God's truth is not complex. It's clear. Now this is this section of the topics that we're going to be dealing with specifically around marriage and around singleness. It will highlight other issues. Next weekend, we're going to be diving into all of the LGBTQ stuff and transgender stuff and looking at that as well. Okay. These big topics. Y'all with me still? All right, so let's look at the origin story found in Genesis, affirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to extract some truths out of it that we can hopefully wrap our minds and our hearts around today. Need your help, every shot number one. Here's the first thing that we, we see um, from these biblical truths is that marriage is designed to ground, guard, and govern our sexuality. Marriage is designed to ground, guard, and govern our sexuality. First Corinthians chapter seven, verses one to five. Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says, now in response to the matters you wrote about, pause, every shall pause, keep this tab open for just a second, little context, Paul is in this moment, uh, in agreement by a lot of theologians, scholars, etc., is answering questions that have presumably come from a letter from the Corinthians. Paul's going to write two letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He's going to write on all kinds of different matters. Y'all, 1 Corinthians, like the Corinthians, they were a wild and out church. Okay, church has gone wild. It was nuts, okay? These guys were doing all kinds of stuff. They needed, they didn't know what was up, what was down, what was sideways, and they needed help. And so they wrote a bunch of questions to Paul in a letter. Paul's going to now retort back. He's going to give some answers to the questions that were given to him. That's what we're reading right now. So he says, now in response to the matters you wrote about, this is what he says. 
It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. <laughs> Can we just look at this statement at face value and say, at least in our modern culture, that flies in the face of everything that we're taught. Because sex for us is the ultimate good. Can we be honest? Now, I know for some of us, there's great woundedness around this. There's great issues surrounding this issue. But I'm talking from like a cultural, like a, a cultural reality. We tout sex as the greatest. It's the pinnacle. It's the, it's the thing that we chase after. Which is scary to me if you think about it. Now, this is next statement I'm going to make is why kids should have been in kids ministry. <laughs> so if you got one sitting next to you, plug your ears. Here, here, here's what we have to really look at. And this is a scary reality. If the pinnacle of our life is an orgasm that is met in seconds and done in seconds, we have bigger problems. And I'm not being, I'm not trying to be crass. Hear, hear, hear what it is. This is what we're chasing after. The grand euphoric moment of a sexual interaction. Paul is actually going to submit to us that the greatest good that one could live by is celibacy. The negation of our sexual desire. Oh, the church is getting quiet. <laughs> Gina, we are not coming back to the well. I don't know what they're putting in the water, but it is weird. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Everybody reading this letter would have freaked out. Because in this cultural moment, women did not have rights at all. So for those of us who have read the Bible before or prescribed to this idea that, that Paul was a chauvinist or a misogynist, it's actually not the truth. Paul was very much about equality in these areas. And right here, he was saying something to the Corinthians that would not have made sense. The fact that he gave women rights over their husband was... Oh! So Paul's not the psychopath that he's presented to be by a lot of people. He's saying, listen, there's mutual affection that needs to take place here. He's saying that marriage is meant to ground, guard, and govern our sexuality. And if you're not married, he's going to go on to say, I wish you could do what I do. And what I do is I'm not married at all. Because these married people, they got a lot of things they have to think about. I'd actually rather you be single and submit your sexuality in a different way unto God so that we can get some stuff done in the world around us. But the problem is, is we've demonized singleness, haven't we? And we've held up marriage as this high and lofty thing. But Paul's speaking to a lot of stuff here. Marriage is designed to ground, guard, and govern our sexuality. We live in a era that is known by many theologians, historians, and philosophers as the age of the therapeutic. What's the governing mantra of this age? I need to be authentic to myself. Authentic to my Self. But the problem is, is it goes against what Paul would write to the Galatians in two seventeen, in chapter two, verses seventeen to twenty-two. 
when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and myself no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The truth is, is that Paul was stating is that we, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, listen, church, we don't live for ourselves. Come on. Is everybody with me today? Auditorium two. Are you with me today? Come on, somebody. We don't live for ourselves. The driving force in our lives is the new life that is found in Christ. This would be why Paul would then write to the Corinthians in first Corinthians six, 18 through to 20. He'd say, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So what we see in these scriptures is that we see that marriage and singleness have a governing reality over the sexual expression of our life. And here's what I want us to hear. Write this down today. You and I were not designed to express ourselves sexually. We were designed to submit ourselves. Four people said amen. Okay. Maybe I need to sit back down. Here's what it looks like. In marriage... We are called to submit our sexuality to God and to our spouse. As a single, you are called to submit your sexuality to God and to abstinence. Those are the only two lanes that God has given us for our sex and sexuality. God did not give us the lanes to run rampant in it, to do whatever we want, to be unbound in it. He says, actually, the contrary, that's going to hurt you. So what I need you to understand is that sex and sexuality is designed, listen to what it's designed for. It's designed for marriage, submitted to God, submitted to self, designed for God through celibacy. Because here's the thing, marriage doesn't cure lust. Why did God create this design? Because sex is not bad. It's awesome but it is potent and it is powerful. Come on. Is anybody with me in church today? It is potent and powerful. That's why sex sells everything. When it comes to marriage, one must realize that that sex is not a cure for desire and drive. This is actually why we still see affairs, porn use, and many other issues regarding sex within marriages. If you're living as a single and you're sleeping with whoever you want to sleep with, marriage is not going to fix that. Think about that. All you're doing is practicing something that you're going to have to submit later. You're making it more difficult. So you might as well practice it in singleness and say, God, I'm going to learn I'm going to learn how to submit this thing to you. I'm going to, by grace, by your grace. Oh, you, you want, you want to understand how you have intimacy with the Lord? Learn to submit this area unto him. 
But I would say to the married couples as well, you want to learn to have intimacy with your spouse and the Lord. Learn how to submit that thing unto your spouse only. Porn is not an option in marriage. Everybody's like, really? are we going here on this Sunday morning? Another person is not an option for your marriage. We submit it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe that it's possible. Wow, that's really high and lofty, Jason. Yeah, that's why we need his grace. That's why we need his spirit at work in our lives. Come on, is the church with me this morning? All right. Now, stop the whatabouts. I know the whatabouts. We'll talk more next week about other situations, other circumstances, other issues that are going on. But today we're really just focusing on this marriage issue and the singleness issue. Number two, everybody shout number two. Marriage is designed to complement our sexed nature and identity. Haven't you read, he replied, Matthew chapter 19, four to five. This is Jesus speaking. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. So he's going to reinforce the specifics of gender and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. Now, before I go any further, I want to say that we're going to look at this more in depth next weekend. And I say this so that my comments don't seem trite or seem like they lack depth to a specific community that is here at the well. I want to say to my, to the LGBTQ people who are here, transgender friends who are here across all three of our services. I want you to know that I love you. This church loves you. You are welcome here. However, it's not going to stop me from having to preach the counsel of God's word. I pray that I pray that you can hear grace and love and humility in this conversation that we have. And next week, we're going to dive into it at more in depth. Abigail Faval, she's a PhD, a writer and professor in the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. In other words, she's a smarty pants. Um, She has an academic background in gender, gender studies and feminist literary criticism. This is what she writes. The Genesis cosmology bestows upon human beings an exclusive kind of dignity a dignity rooted in their roles as image bearers. Moreover, Genesis recognizes the duality of humankind, male and female. This difference is part of the goodness of creation and both sexes share fully in the divine image and the commission to tend the earth. There is no sense here of hierarchy between male and female, but rather a shared benevolent governance over the rest of creation. She then goes on to write this, that because of sin, and I quote, the body becomes a hotbed of resistance to the spirit. The body is objectified, becoming a terrain of appropriation. In other words, there is because of sin, a war that is fought out in the interior of our selfhood. And then the body animates and expresses the victor of that war on any given day. The body reveals what's going on in our personhood. This is why people who struggle with anxiety or depression, please hear my heart today, guys. This is why you see it in their body. 
because the body is animated by what's going on in our personhood. And I believe it at a, at a physical, mental, and spiritual level. And this is where sometimes stuff is left out. I believe when there is a war of loves going on inside of us, the body is animated by it. We see it. I've had it in me in different times of my life where I'm struggling at something at a deep fundamental part of who I am. It plays itself out in the body. The body reveals what's going on in our lives. Marriage highlights and celebrates the unique givenness of ourselves seen in our created sex order. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point. Remember, we're looking at the theology of marriage and the theology of marriage presents to us our complemented or complements our sexed nature and identity. That's what we see through marriage. Okay. We're going to talk about, like I said, next week, LGBTQ transgender issues next weekend. Does that sound good to everybody? Okay. Come back. Number three. Everybody shout number three. All right, Joe, come on up. More so than the LGBTQ plus and transgender issues and even weightier subject matters presented to us in the theology of marriage. Here's the third point. Marriage is designed to be exclusive and permanent. Now, this is a hard one for some of us because we sit in this room today as the recipients of things that didn't go so well. We have small groups that are designed for people who are working through and coping with divorce. We have people who find themselves in abusive situations. Let's read what Jesus said. Matthew 19, 6 through 9. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Verse 7. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? What they're referencing is that Moses had actually had a pretty lax view on this issue. And people could get divorced really for a lot of different reasons. Men had the overall authority and could do what they wanted to do. He told them, this is Jesus speaking church. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not, here he goes, but it was not like that from the beginning. So see how he references original intent. And contrary to popular pen, what we need to understand and know is that when Jesus redeems us, there's an image, a mere image that you and I can live out that is pre-fall. He's saying, listen, you don't have to succumb to sin anymore. You do not have to succumb to the death that's offered you in that, but rather through my sacrifice, through grace, there's a greater vision for your life that you can participate in. So that's why he said, this is what it looked like at the beginning. And then he says, he, he raises the bar really high. He says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is why I brought Joe up. So she can soften some of this. <laughs> I don't want to soften the truth of it. But I do want to soften what the enemy is going to try to do right now in this room and start whispering shame all over this place. 
Now, I know, I want to be very clear. Jesus was not advocating for abusive relationships. If you are in an abusive relationship right now, physically, verbally, you need to get out of it. If you are a man in this room participating in that, I want to say as clear as I possibly can, knock that off. You were not designed and you do not have the authority. And I want to give those of you who may be caught in a hiding place right now the courage to do what you need to do to get out of that. Now I know all the whatabouts are flying around the room right now. I want to look at some revealing statistics, though, because this is where we see the truth, not, not, the, not the peripherals of the issue. Now, when it comes to abuse and things like that, but let's just look at the, the bulk sum of what's happening around this issue of divorce. The average length of a marriage right now is eight years. Eight years. According to their article, this is an article that was done by Forbes, probably one of the most robust research articles done. Over half of marriages will end in divorce. And they write that second, third, and fourth marriages have an even higher rate of divorce. Couples who live together before marriage are more likely to, to divorce. And I quote, living together prior to marriage is one predictor of the likelihood of divorce. A total of 57% of couples who did not cohabitate prior to marriage had a union that lasted 20 years or more. But here's my problem even with that statistic. If we're aiming for only 20 years, if that's our aim, right? Like just think about this. Like, did you just sit down at dinner and be like, man, if we can just get it 20 years, we've succeeded. Y'all see what I'm talking about? Original intent, God's design. Researchers found that friendships matter. Listen to this, and I quote, the marital stability within a couple's social network also play a role in whether their union lasts. Couples who have friends who divorce have a 75% increase in risk of their own marriage ending. Even couples with two degrees of separation from divorce still have a 33% higher risk, greater risk. This is an article done by Forbes. You want to know what the number one reason for divorce is? Number one reason. And this stuck out to me. Researchers looked at the top reasons for divorce and found that 75% of individuals and couples cited lack of commitment as the reason for their divorce. But here's the thing. God didn't wire us when it came to the institution of marriage for commitment. He called it a covenant. This is the most common thing. Second, the second issue, 60% of couples cite a partner's unfaithfulness as a reason for their union ending. Third on the list, the third reason for ending marriages was simply conflict on things that they didn't know how to get around. Spousal abuse is actually way down on the list. Out of 13 top issues, it was number 10. Arguing, excessive conflict. Now here's one of the most pointed statistics I believe is worth noting. The religion with the lowest divorce population is Hindu. The religion with the highest divorce population is evangelical Protestant. 
evangelical Protestants divorce at a higher rate than any other religious group. Why do I say this? Maybe I can maybe bring, break some of the tension. I don't know how we can desire to disciple the world when we can't get our house in order. I'm not saying we got to be better than, and I'm not saying that we're, we're perfect, but I think we could fight harder for our lives before we start fighting hard for everybody else's life. Sit and look in the mirror for a second. I know this is, this is tougher territory for some of us. This is sensitive stuff. Now, there, there are more statistics. i got pages of statistics here. I don't even know why I put all this on here. That's a lot of pages of statistics. i got <laughs> statistics on porn. Um, all the statistics say this. It's bad. Don't do it. <laughs> In 68% of divorces, one spouse has met a new lover over the Internet. Eleven years old is the age at which the average child will be exposed to porn, although about one out of five report being at ten or younger. You want to know where that exposure comes from? Top place? From their household. Not their bro. Their dad. Their mom. Their uncle, their cousin. So this quote out of one commentary says, marriage is a principal image in the scriptures for describing the binding covenantal relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And again, between Christ and the church. The foremost idea conveyed through this image is not sexual union. So sex isn't even the thing. Sex is like all the way down here, honestly. Even as married couples, if I can help you out today, if, the, if, if you're majoring on this sex thing, you got the wrong major there. Because how many of you married couples would acknowledge this? If you don't have peace, if you don't have joy in that marriage, if you don't have camaraderie, if you don't have communication, if your finances aren't in order, if you aren't sleeping well, sex sucks. It's not the pinnacle. And that's why marriage is actually to show us an even greater thing. I'll get to that in just a second. The foremost idea conveyed through this image is not sexual union, but complete steadfastness, fidelity, and loyalty. It is on the basis of Yahweh's fidelity to his people that the people of God are to understand the permanent and comprehensive union that is human marriage. In Jesus' mighty name. Number four, last one is this. Based upon that truth, marriage is is designed to highlight our greater relationship with Christ. Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. This is what Paul writes. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word 
He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. Erica, I'm talking to you right now. You're in auditorium too. Can you run over here really quick, babe? Let's go. She's like, I'm not going to run. Sorry, I did not do this in the first service, but I want to highlight this. Where's she at? Somebody be like, what church did I just step into this weekend? Hey, baby. (laughs) Pop up here. I want to, for some of us, this could be a very visceral analogy, but so when Paul... (laughs) So Paul lines these words at submit... A lot of us freak out about that because we don't like that language uh, because we're America. Um, So we've been discipled in the era of independence. So what happens is we have a tendency to cue in on this whole submit issue, but fail to realize what Paul's lining out for the men in it as well. And so a lot of people focus on like, how does this work out in orthopraxy? And so we think of things like if a woman is submitting, then she is doing these behaviors within the house. And that's actually un- like, that is not in context, right? And you've got to take all of this across the course of scripture as well, looking at Corinthians and what we just looked at is there. He's, Paul's saying, listen, you have liberty over your husband's body and et cetera. So I want you to see what this mutually submissive life looks like. Okay. I want you to, this is, this is Paul's imagery. Paul's imagery is, Submit to your husband, okay? But give your life for your wife. So I want want you to bow, okay? (laughs) This better be good. That's all I got to say. Better turn out. I want you to see this. This this is what it looks like. So he's not saying who goes first, who goes last. He's saying husbands and wives. I want you to see what this looks like. Watch what this looks like because a lot of us have the imagery that one is above the other. But Ephesians 5 is actually giving us mutual submission. Watch what this looks like. So she thinks she's going to bow, but I'm going to give my life. She's going to bow. Hey, baby. How low are we going? We're going all the way down. Okay. okay. We're going to bow. And this is, look at, look at, look at, I want you to see this. Okay. Look at this. Hold on. Where are you going? See anything. I didn't say lay. Bow. Not take a nap. This this is what it looks like to humble ourselves in mutual submission. It's not the man standing over the woman. Because Christ didn't do that for the church. He laid his life down for the church. This is the picture of marriage. To submit ourselves one to another. 
Now I know for some of us in our church background, this is really hard for you because you were taught, you were disciple. We're going to talk about uh, women, ex- like specifically, Pastor Howie and I are going to do a message in just a few weeks about women in ministry and so on and so forth. But some of you were taught specifically that men stand up here. And I'm like, but I don't know how you do it because Jesus didn't do it that way. It's, it's mutual. This is where. And I would submit to some of us the reason that relationships haven't lasted is because none of us have done this. Oh, can I tell you, faith in Jesus is so hard. I ain't pitching something that's not there. It is so hard. Because this rages against who we are, myself. That rages against me. But in Christ, it's no longer I who live. It's no longer her who lives. It is Christ who lives in me and gives me the power to live the way that he's designed me to be in Jesus' mighty name. And the church shouted. Can you give her a round of applause? She did not know she was going to do that. Marriage is designed to highlight our greater relationship with Christ. So what's he highlighting? What's it highlighting? Well, Christ laid his life down for you. And when you stood like this in your sin, when you stood like this in your pride, when you stood like this in your ego, he said, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to die for that son, that daughter, so they could come back home, that they may have a seat at the table. And I pray today, church, that while this topic and the subject matter is tense for some of us, I pray that we would see the beauty of who Jesus is in all of it and understand above all else, he gave his life for you and for me, that we might have freedom not to live however we want to live, but actually the freedom and access to true peace, true joy that is only found in the giver of life. And his name is Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Come on, bow your head, close your eyes in this moment. Team, if you can stay as still as possible. We got some of our team heading out to places, but here's the deal. Jesus gave his life for you. No matter where you're at, no matter what's going on, no matter the situation or the circumstance, no matter what you're caught up in, I just want you to know that there's a path forward for you. In this room today, I know there's some of us right now who are wrestling greatly. God is working in you right now. The spirit of God is moving in you right now. He's beckoning to some of you, wooing you, saying, come home. So I just want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus if that's you today. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, we're going to pray a prayer. It's not the fancy in these words, but rather the heart from which these words come. And if you would say today, man, Jason, I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to follow him. Make this your prayer. 
today. Come on, as loud as you possibly can. Would you just repeat these words after me? Everybody say, Jesus. I'm standing before you today. And I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me. Change me. Make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I am surrendering to you. Have my life. Have everything that I am. Because I want all of you. In Jesus' mighty name.